0: The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content relating to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised.
1: It was Friday, February 6th, 1981, in Irvine, California. 35 Columbus, a single-story tract home, sat in a newer development surrounded by orange groves. David and Manuela Within, who resided there, had middle-class aspirations. A spacious house, no kids. He, a salesperson at a Mercedes-Benz dealership, and she a loan officer at California First Bank. They were making it. Earlier in the week, David had been admitted to the hospital with the GI virus, staying for a few days. Manuela kept to the same routine, until she didn't. David called looking for her at work when he couldn't reach her at home. Finally, he called his mother-in-law. Ruth later found her daughter in the bedroom. Ruth called a family friend to go back into the house with her. He said, I couldn't figure out how it got on the wall from where she was lying, it referring to blood. He took one look in the room and never looked again. The lamp in the bedroom was missing, evidence of what was used to bludgeon her head. Red marks circled her wrists and ankles, evidence of ligatures that had been removed. The door had been pried open with a screwdriver. When asked if he noticed anything strange, David mentioned that three to four months earlier, there had been footprints in the yard he couldn't explain. Most violent criminals are impulsive, disorganized, easily caught. The vast majority of homicides are committed by people known to the victim usually ID'd and ultimately arrested. Roughly 5% bestow the biggest challenge, crimes that reveal careful pre-planning and unremorseful rage. Manuela's murder was the second type, the one that scares us the most. The prowling in the months before, someone watching each movement, the ragged, red ligature marks, the barbarity of her wounds. There are not many worse things to see in Irvine, a small and quiet town. Murder was a rare circumstance.
0: Hi, I want to welcome you to the Murder Shelf Book Club. I'm Jill. And I'm Tara. We are reading Michelle McNamara's I'll Be Gone in the Dark. Some of you might know this case from hearing about the original Night Stalker, or the Visalia Ransacker, or even the East Area Rapist. But Michelle McNamara gave him the name, the Golden State Killer.
1: And the Golden State Killer can be attributed to a laundry list of violent crimes. Twelve murders, 45 rapes, and the ransacking of more than 100 homes in the state of California from 1974 to 1986.
0: Before we get into the statistics, the unfortunate victims, anytime anyone has book club, there's food and drink associated with it because book club's supposed to be fun. For our book club, I prepared a little dessert. It's a brie raspberry tart. Philo dough, little brie, little raspberry, you bake it. I've attempted to take those brie loaves and wrap them raspberry and phyllo dough and bake them and have really wound up with a a sticky gooey mess. So I've kind of abandoned that in favor of these small tarts. Our recipe will be available on our blog at
1: MurderShelfBookClub.com. What are we having to drink, Tara? Well, now that we have the perfect finger food and not a seeping mess of <laughs> cheese, exactly, um, we're going to be having a 2018 Aromatherapy Viognier from First Leaf Wine Club. Um, this viognier is from California. I believe it's very close to Sacramento County, yep. right on point. And this has a floral nose, it's mineral with stone fruit flavors like peach and pear, and it's perfect with a soft, creamy cheese like brie. It's
0: like we planned this. I think we did. <laughs> <laughs> That sounds like one great white wine. Tara and I have had a book club for years and have read probably 40, 50 books. Really, we did not know that much about this case. I'd read a couple, but this did not have the notoriety of a Ted Bundy. So when Michelle's book came out, it really did highlight the crimes and the gravity of the terror that this man created from 1974 to 1986. And realized people didn't know it was over. Just because he knew it was over, we didn't know it was over.
1: What you'll find too, as Michelle explains, is that a lot of the information that she found was actually from crime blogs and people that she was talking to who are quote-unquote armchair detectives. So when this book came out,
0: it really galvanized the attention of the public on the crimes of this criminal. And I think that's one of the reasons that we picked this very dense, very complicated story for our very first podcast. Did Michelle's book help them catch the Golden State Killer? I think it can contribute to an atmosphere in which that was possible. Her tenacity, her investigation, the fortitude that she supplied, I think it did make a difference. Did she personally go out and catch his DNA? No, that's the job of law enforcement. The role Michelle plays here in going down every rabbit hole, looking under every rock is undeniable. And that's why this book is important.
1: And what investigators like Paul Holes, Larry Crompton, Larry Poole, what they'll tell you is that Michelle was more or less their partner in terms of this investigation. Her drive and what she did, research, gathering materials, the extensive gathering of materials, really helped kind of push this investigation along.
0: I know it was exhausting reading this book because of the detail that she provided. And Michelle died with the book half written. So it had to be completed by the kid, Paul Haynes, and Billy Jensen as her husband asked them to help complete Michelle's book to make sure that it was published. And they did that.
1: And I know we've read this book countless of times preparing our first podcast for everyone and... Hopefully you've read along with us, too, so you know how much effort Michelle had put into this book. But I can only imagine how long this book might have actually have been had she lived. Especially since at the end of the book, you see how many rabbit holes she didn't go down, how many lists she had that she hadn't really gotten to yet.
0: Yeah, there was boxes of files from Ventura that she never had a chance to go through. So one can only imagine what she would have done with that. I think her contribution is uh, just undeniable. And in terms of true crime, I think it's a must read.
1: Oh, absolutely. For any of the naysayers out there, her husband, Pat Oswalt, had a tweet after the police said Michelle's book didn't help. He said, quote, It did, but Michelle McNamara didn't care about getting any shine on herself. She cared about the Golden State Killer being behind bars and the victims getting some relief. She was Marge Gunderson in Fargo, not Chilton in Silence of the Lambs. Also, the cops will never and have never credited a writer or journalist for helping them solve a case. But every time they said Golden State Killer, they credited the work of Michelle McNamara and I'll be gone in the dark. End quote. Yeah, so we know she coined that term. She did. She
0: named him that. The other names were not effective and connecting all the dots for you and understanding the gravity of what this man did. And he is behind bars.
1: And so for our readers out there, too, um, we know that there was uh, an older edition that first came out and a rather new edition that came out with more supplemental material, especially after he was caught. We know that this is going to become an HBO series, or at least that was the hope of what it was going to become. We've been trying to figure out a release date, but there hasn't really been much information about if this series is still going to be made now that Joseph D'Angelo has been
0: I'm hoping it will be, and if anyone has more information on that, you can email us at Tara at murdershelfbookclub.com, and we will include that in Second Cast or in any subsequent podcast when we find
1: out. So we welcome you to our book club and our hope is that you'll read along with us after we've pulled a book off our Murder Shelf and then join us as we hold our book club the following month. So please read along with us. That's
0: right, Tara. Murder Shelf Book Club is bi-monthly. Second week of the month we'll do our book review and second cast will be during the fourth week of the month when Tara and I will deep dive into portions of the book, possibly interview authors, look into consequences that have developed any breakthroughs, change in status, effects socially, culturally, legally, and answering your questions, because we very
1: much want to hear about what you're thinking and what you'd like to know more about.
0: So you'll have to stay tuned. Second cast is going to be very flexible.
1: So as Jill mentioned earlier, this was a hefty book to unpack for our first first rodeo at this. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the things that we wanted to go through, for those of you who have read this book, Michelle... Tends to follow themes, tends to follow rabbit holes. As she does start in the future as opposed to the very beginning. So we wanted to just start with a brief overview of some of the crimes and kind of go in chronological order so everyone kind of knew the extent of what Joseph D'Angelo, the Golden State Killer, had actually done.
0: The story really begins in Visalia in break-ins taking place in April 1974. This is going to last through early 1976. And these are violent break-ins, peeping toms. It is really odd from the beginning. They have him hitting multiple homes in a night, like four or five. One night, a dozen houses were hit. Very, very strange kept targeting the same for residential neighborhoods, and when he would go in, he didn't just rob people. That's the norm of what happens in a robbery. He goes in, breaks in, seals something, leaves. That's not what happened here. This guy was a perv with a mean streak and with an apparent bone to pick with a domestic unit. That's a quote from the book. He would go in and rip up family photos, pour orange juice on clean clothing, and thoroughly trash the place. He'd steal personal items, wedding rings, and leave other items of value. So this is going to be a thing with this guy, and remember that as we move forward. There's also a sexual element here that's not really connected to robbery per se. He would pose women's underwear. I'm not sure exactly how he posed the women's underwear, But nevertheless, he did. Why would you stop and do that, robbing a place? Because you're not there really to steal anything of value. You are there for psychological reasons. And that's what's going on here. Posing is rare. Even in homicides, it occurs in less than 1% of the crimes. Posing is when you deliberately set a body into a certain position, usually for shock, to send a message. It's usually demeaning. It's not pleasant at all. But in this case, there's no body yet. What he's doing is posing the underwear, a woman's underwear. This is a purely psychological action on his part. It has nothing to do with committing a robbery. So this guy has been unusual from the beginning. And this is your Visalia Ransacker.
1: So in Vizalia, there's two major incidents. The first was on September 11th, 1975. Uh, the young daughter, she was 16 years old, of Claude Snelling. She woke up to find a man straddling her. He said, you're coming with me. Don't scream or I'll stab you. Pretty much what he says consistently throughout his reign as Golden State Killer. So then he pulled a gun and then said, don't scream or I'll shoot you. So we don't know if he has a gun, knife, if he has any weapons. As he's dragging Claude's daughter out of the house, he comes out of his room and says, hey, where, what are you doing? Where are you taking my daughter? As he's dragging her out onto the patio into the backyard, the Golden State Killer fatally shoots Snelling in his left side. Claude falls back into the house, and he ends up dying, surrounded by his family while they're in the house. And back in February, Claude had actually seen a peeping Tom crouched underneath his daughter's window. So unfortunately, that I believe might have been the first attributed killing to... The Golden, State Golden State Killer. Golden State Killer or Vizelli Ransacker. Absolutely, um, This yeah. was before they connected all the dots. The second incident was December 10th, 1975. And this was with Detective Bill McGowan. The Ransacker had targeted three times on this street, West Koalia. Bill McGowan, he first got information from Mrs. Haley West that they encountered a man with a ski mask. So everyone in the area, especially with this guy hitting so many homes, they're on the alert for any shoe tracks any other things that might attribute to somebody prowling, stalking, peeping toms, that kind of thing. So at 7 p.m., a simple surveillance operation, the garage door open, light off. They're sitting in the dark watching the neighbor's house through the window of the garage. At about 8.30 p.m., they see a crouching figure who creeps by, and he's kind of creeping around the house, obviously looks suspicious. He was large, ungainly frame, oddly proportioned, and McGowan follows him. And when McGowan sees him and basically says, hey, police figure freezes, and he kind of screeches out in this high-pitched voice, oh, my God, don't hurt me, over and over again. Wow. Then he starts kind of darting this way and that, trying to get out of the way, um, obviously, because McGowan probably has his gun out. When he fires a warning shot, he says, I give up. See, my hands are up. And under hypnosis later on, um, when Bill's asked what this guy kind of looked like, he says, baby, round, soft-looking baby, very light skin, soft, round, baby face. Or my favorite quote from Billy Jensen, Little Baby Dick Moonface, since uh, that's one of the <laughs> attributes of the Golden State Killer is that he had a small member down in his private area. But the baby man turns, pulls a gun out of his pocket, and fires at McGowan. And the bullet actually hit McGowan's flashlight. Oh, thank God. Exactly. I mean, thank God there wasn't another murder after
0: this. It did knock McGowan over, though.
1: Oh, Yeah. And um, (laughs) he probably thought he was deaf for a minute until he realized that only his flashlight had gotten hit. Right. There was a a bit of a chase, but after he kind of scrambled over the fence, this guy was basically like a monkey climbing over fences on roofs, things like that. Um, They couldn't find anything. But then the composite sketch based on Bill's run-in was released to the local press in mid-1976. This is significant. There's a running theory throughout the book, especially from Paul Holes, where they say maybe he got scared, maybe that's why he left. There are some parallels now that we know who the Golden State Killer is, Joseph D'Angelo. And also one of those theories was that he was a police officer. And we'll talk about that in more detail in our second cast.
0: You know, I just want to point out that Officer McGowan just had a hunch. He trusted his gut that this guy was coming back, that he'd had all this attention in that area on that street. And we need to trust our guts. We do. We're the only species that disregards that inner voice, that little feeling that we get, and very much to our detriment. If you've heard of blindsight, that's when the blind actually respond as if they can see and they'll walk across the room and step over something. It's because we perceive below our level of awareness and we are picking up cues. That's where you get that little feeling from. So trust your gut. And what's the worst thing that can happen? You know, you you wake up, you have a funny feeling, you go and you put the extra lock on the door. Oh, gee, that was dumb. Nothing happened. Well, in this case, McGowan's hunch was right. He trusted his gut and almost caught this guy in 1975. We wouldn't have had to wait till 2018. So people trust that little inner voice. Trust that feeling that something's wrong. It really can make a difference. Now, the Golden State Killer is going to shift over to Rancho Cordova, which is a really lovely county area in Sacramento, split by the American River. You've got Mather Air Force Base there. Big employer is Aerojet. So there's been a boom in residential housing for the employees there. You have Zinfidel Drive, Leisling Way. I mean, this is just a lovely environment, and people are listening to Petal Frampton, The Eagles. This is something that Michelle does masterfully throughout the book is to really give you a sense of where the people are living, where the victims are from. And when you have someone who is climbing over fences, climbing on roofs, going through backyards, it's really essential for you to have a sense of where this is taking place. She just does a fantastic job with that. I mean, it was just so impressive. So we're in Rancho Cordova. He's known as the East Area Rapist here because he is now escalating to rape. It's not an accident that he had that sexual interest in women's underwear, that psychological need, and now he's moved on to rape. starts in April of 76. He will basically go into a woman's home, tie her up. He's wearing a ski mask, always wears gloves. There'll be no fingerprints associated with him. And in this case in June, he breaks into her house wearing no pants. He must be confident, you think? Because you know what he's there for. Now, he has a knife. He attacks a woman named Sheila. That muffled voice, he uses that muffled voice. If you make one sound or a move, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to stick this knife in you. And that's a very sexual way of putting it. I'm going to stick this knife in you. He ties ligatures around her wrists. He uses a a red belt that he finds, stuffs nylons into her mouth, uses baby oil on his penis from her home, and then he rapes her. And again, uses that clenched jaw, guttural whisper, and actually puts a one-inch cut by her eyebrow. He leaves and gets away with it again. His preparation for these rapes is really fanatical. Sheila had received hang-up calls for weeks. He'd evidently been monitoring her schedule. In April, she's reporting to friends that she just feels like someone's watching her. She thought she noticed a medium dark car following her around. Well, now we realize this was probably him. This is his M.O. This is what he will do to many other women. Then in October, victim number five, Jane Carson, is home, sends her husband off to work. She's in bed with her little boy He's three years old. And she hears her husband coming back down the hallway. And she's like, hey, did you forget something? Only it's not her husband. It's the East Area Rapist. And here she is with her little boy. Jane has said in many interviews, and when I was lucky enough to meet her at CrimeCon a couple years ago, all she was concerned about was her son being safe. And he slept through everything. And he did the same procedure over. Tied her, threatened her through the clenched teeth, that if she moved or did anything, that he would kill her and rapes her and then eventually leaves. What's significant here is that he knew exactly when Jane's husband was leaving. He knew exactly when he could come into that house and had no fear of being caught, no fear at all. So he was watching. He was doing reconnaissance before he attacked her because she thought her husband was coming back down the hallway. That's how close his attack was versus when he left the house. Oh, hon, what did you forget? What anybody would say when you hear hear sound in the hallway.
1: And this is what is the most chilling thing for me, like just the the pre-planning and the watching and the waiting, how close he cut it. And even Detective Shelby would say that this was one of the most significant things that he noticed throughout all of these crimes. One of the things with Jane is she was also cut, just like Sheila. She didn't think that it was on purpose, but Shelby disagreed. And he thought that he was suppressing an urge to inflict more pain. And obviously, as we know now, there was significant escalation, especially after some of these rapes occurred. This
0: is now the second time he's injured someone. He's suppressing the urge to maim. That that urge is going to continue to grow. And we know it does. And he will murder. And that's coming. What's really interesting is that by October 1976, there were three more rapes in very quick succession. And there is still a media blackout nobody's told that there is a rapist.
1: It's insane to me that they would never talk about this, especially we just went over two horrific rapes, and then there was three more in quick succession, I think, in one month, October? Uh, Yeah, this is just October. Jane was in September. And nobody talked about it. So one of the underlying elements of this narrative is that there was another rapist that was attacking victims in the area, and they called him the early bird rapist. There was a lot of speculation that this might be the same guy. Detective Shelby, though, had said, no, this, not, this is not the guy. Uh, this guy is smarter. He's also a lot weirder. And if we put the time of the attacks into perspective, this was even before criminal profiling even existed. There were no terms of serial killer, posing, signature, ritual behavior, or anything like that. And that's what's really important now, is now we know those terms, and now we can kind of delve a little bit deeper into the psychology. And we'll actually talk about the EAR and his MO, modus operandi, after a word about an organization that we support 100%.
0: One organization that Tara and I fully support is the DNA Doe Project. Founded in 2017, the DNA Doe Project endeavors to bring cold cases, that is, bodies left unidentified for decades, to be identified using new DNA technology and procedures. Their goal is to reunite the missing and lost with their families. And they've been successful. Recently, a 37-year-old mystery of a young woman called Buckskin Girl was solved. And Buckskin Girl has a name. She is Marcia L. King, and she's been reunited with her family. Any money donated to this organization goes to agencies who need help funding the lab work required to process these cases. The DNA Doe Project is completely volunteer. So if you're in a position to give and support the project, The information is on our Murder Shelf Book Club blog. You can also opt to upload your DNA profile to GEDmatch. I have. This is such a worthy cause as everyone who's into true crime knows.
1: So Jill, can you tell us what a modus operandi
0: is? I can, actually. It is Latin for operating method, using air quotes, of course. It's really critical to understand the attacks and how they are conducted. This will link a series of assaults together. The M.O. is how the crime is executed. How did he get in? What tools did he use? How does he rob someone? How does he rape someone? These things are those dots that will connect the crimes together. And that's his M.O. M.O. can change as he get better at doing something, or if he has a psychotic break, how he gets worse at doing something. This guy is a planner. He is an organizer. He wants to control as much as he can of what is going on and happening. What he cannot predict, however, is the response of the victims. The MO for Ear, the East Rapist. He breaks in after reconnaissance around the neighborhood, flashlight right to the eyes blinding his victims. Always wearing a mask, gloves, there will be no fingerprints telling victims to masturbate him with their bound hands. He never fondles the women. There's no forced intimacy. There's no tell-me-you-love-me thing going on. None of that. No kissing. The houses that he selects are single-story. He seems to prefer the second house in, and he'll drape a towel over the TV to kind of limit the light so you can still see, but it's not something that's going to reflect outside. He got off asking them questions, Hey, what am am I doing? What am I doing? And here's this blindfolded victim that has lotion all over her hands for masturbating him. So he's psychologically torturing them as he is raping them. If there were children in the home, he never really bothered the children, thank God. This guy is unique from day one. He is committed to this reconnaissance, to this preparation, to this stalking. It is very, very unusual. He's entering houses when no one is home. He is learning the layout. He's leaving doors and windows unlocked. If he finds a gun, he's going to empty the gun. He's going to move other weapons. He'll make phone calls to victims afterwards because he's in their home. He would know their phone number. And again, making this these clenched voice whispers and hang-ups. He would ransack the kitchen. Uh, what does this sound like? He would eat, help himself to a beer. He would go through drawers. He would occasionally take items. Items that aren't valuable. Where have we heard this before? Told you to remember this, the Visalia Ransacker. He's doing exactly the same thing that he did there. Figuring out when people are leaving for work. Watching them. Stalking them. Cars following people. All this reconnaissance that he's doing, following people, learning their habits. This is meeting his psychological needs. He made mention to Jane Carson. Is that the way the captain does it? Telling her he knows they were a military family. Another victim, he said, you don't know me, do you? It was a long time ago for you, is it? But I know you. That's psychological torture. Carol Daly, who is one of the law enforcement officers working on this case, says a typical rapist does not have such elaborate schemes. The M.O. then is the rape. Everything else that's going on is purely psychological. And that's what we today would call a signature. It's done for purely psychological reasons.
1: And now we're going to get to the end of the press blackout. So just how we thought it was very weird where nobody was talking about this. He's going to want people to talk about it now. On October 18th, 1976, there were two attacks in a 24-hour period. Two attacks. He strikes on Kipling Drive in Carmichael. It's an affluent area on the east side. He wants press, he attacks the elite. And this works. So on november third, nineteen seventy six, there was five hundred people that attend Deldeo Elementary School for a crime prevention meeting. And then the following day, there's an article in the Sacramento Bee that the headline reads Man hunted as suspect in eight rapes. There's another story on november tenth. That night in Citrus Heights, there was a leather hooded man who came and essentially kidnapped a sixteen year old girl. He said, Make one move and you'll be silent forever, and I'll be gone in the dark. And this is significant because that's where the title of the book comes from. This is kind of where it all changes for everyone, where this is becoming more of a monster in the light as opposed to someone who's just in the dark, kind of silently stalking and committing rapes. We're seriously escalating here. He takes this poor girl outside, down an embankment. He's never really taken anyone except for when he tried to take Claude Snelling's father. He leads her down to the drainage ditch. They walk a half mile to an old willow tree, and when she's back and the police find her, she later retraces her steps with Detective Shelby. At that place where she leads them to, they find cut shoestrings, shredded Levi's, and green panties that lay in a heap. This poor girl, she says she's not raped, but I kind of have a feeling that maybe she was and she just didn't want to talk about it. Remember, this is the
0: 70s. There's a very, very different attitude today when we're talking about rape than it was in the 1970s. Sadly, the time and error context is important.
1: And she recalls him saying, don't you go to American River College? Again, the creepy knowledge that he has over everyone that he's watching. She says, no, are, are you thinking of someone else? And he presses the knife again, and she's like, no, it's not me. Then she might resemble a neighbor who actually went to that college. Was this a mistake? What happened? Obviously, he's looking at multiple people at the same time and trying to figure out who's going to be his next victim, which in itself is a scary, scary thing. So again, with this poor girl, we see evidence of that weird precision of timing. The parents had left to visit a brother in the hospital, and she had a date with her boyfriend later that night. And he knew when he could find her alone. And he replaced the screen carefully. He turned off the TV and all of the lights so there wouldn't be any alarm raised. Tara, that is just so disturbing. So this brings us
0: to February 1977. And this was a really tough month for our Golden State Killer. In February 2nd, in Carmichael, a 30-year-old woman was bound, blindfolded, gagged on a bed, and raped. She's left for quite some time, and is beginning to think that maybe this ordeal is over, and starts to call out to her 7-year-old daughter, who's, Shh, 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 mama, be quiet! And someone pushes her down on the bed. This is one of the other characteristics of this guy that he would sit very quietly, let them think that it's over, that he's gone, that they're safe, that they can move, that they can get help, and then he'd make noise. His goal is to terrorize his victims as much as possible. But during this rape, the woman struggled, and you beat her with the gun he had over the head. As a result, when she does wind up at the hospital, they get the East Area Rapist's blood type, type A positive. And analysis reveals that he is a non-secreter. secretor. is, his semen does not carry a positive antigens. That about 20% of the population are non secretors. So this is real evidence that can be used against Ear. On February 16th, there's a crash in a backyard. Someone has jumped over a fence and landed in the electric smoker. Doug and Dale Moore go chasing after this guy. Doug is actually shot, severely injured. Uh, he's injured in the stomach, intestines, bladder, rectum. He's going to survive. Meanwhile, neighbors hear sounds in the backyard, fences being scaled, someone walking on the roof, side gates opening, and slats being kicked out. There's barking dogs. Now, I have to ask you something. We are now up to 14 rapes in 15 months. The the blackout's lifted. This is in the newspaper. They've had town meetings. Do you call the
1: police? You hear someone running around on your roof? I know what the correct answer is to that. The answer would be yes, but I know that's not what's going on.
0: I have to be just not understanding the mentality of 1977 because I don't get it. Because if I know that there's a guy running around raping people and that the police have told me he stalks in the area, uh, neighbors hear sounds in fences and people on the roof and all of this is going on, I am on the phone and I understand
1: they're not cell phones, so I have to go to that wall phone and dial the police. I don't get that. Well, I know that we discussed earlier about the mentality behind the police and how a lot of these people are coming from military families, military backgrounds, and one of the things that we learned from Man in the Window, which is a really great podcast, we definitely encourage people to listen to that and kind of get more detail from the actual victims, Now that they've come forward to explain their story, but one of the things that we get from um, some of the victims is how they were raped and they weren't allowed to talk about it fathers restricted them from talking about it like it didn't even happen absolutely
0: tara that is a really great point that the rape happened and now it's over and we're never going to talk about it again forget it move on move on with your life it's got to be a 70s thing that was one of my frustrations reading the book and i don't know if i'm being unfair or just not understanding that context at that time and that brings us to march 1977 This is when we find out that Ear is reading the newspapers. Yes, he is one of those serial killers that likes to read about himself. His ego is that big. Up until now, he has never attacked, and this is reported in the Sacramento Bee, when there has been a male in the house. So what does he do? He decides to attack when there is a male in the house. And this is a big change. Had been single women, maybe women with children, now... He's going after the couples. March 18th, 1977, the sheriff department. The sheriff department is getting phone calls from this guy. I'm here. I'm the East Area Rapist. I have my next victim stopped and you guys can't catch me. This guy's gloating and bragging. His ego is really, really something to behold. Kind of reminds me of the Zodiac Killer, another one who has not been caught. He would write letters to the Blue Meanies as he calls law enforcement. One of them, he says, hey pigs, does it rile you up to have your nose rubbed in your boo-boos? This is the kind of mentality. It's, It's base, it's narcissistic, and here he is. Now, in April 1977, he begins using a homemade alarm system. First, he'll break into the house, he'll tie the couples up, and then on the mail, he will place cups and saucers, stacks of dishes, If there's any movement at all, if he hears any rattling, it alerts him that the man is trying to get help, trying to free himself. It really paralyzes the male. He is rendered completely helpless. Because if he does that, he's threatened to kill his wife, his girlfriend. And this is that escalation that we're talking about. Continuing threatening violence. Using that psychological torture.
1: And just circling back to how we were talking about the pre-planning, where he's going into the houses, emptying guns, leaving doors and windows unlocked. That's how he was able to surprise these couples, especially a male in the home. He came in, he had a flashlight, he blinded them, basically shocked them awake.
0: Now, you have to admit this guy is crafty. And it kind of brings me to a theory that Michelle was playing with. Is there evidence that this guy was in the military? It certainly seemed like a very strong possibility. She took that radar that she has and really turned that obsessively into answering this question. There's five military installations within an hour drive of Sacramento, Mather Air Force Base, which is close to Rancho Cordova, where there's 8,000 personnel alone. Witnesses said he wore army greens and fatigues, black lace-up military-style boots, had that very authoritative posture. You hate to stereotype, but it can be indicative of having that kind of military background. From her father-in-law, Larry Oswalt, she learned that some of the bases had been closed. McLean Air Force Base, Mather, they had closed in 93 and 2001, respectively. Beale was still active. That was about 40 miles north of Sacramento. Travis, Fairfield, California, that's still active as well.
1: So just to tie into what Jill was just talking about with possible military connections, there might also be police or law enforcement connections. What they believed he might have been using was maybe a military night scope and or a movement detector, which is commonly used in Vietnam at the time. There was also an army colonel who spoke on special forces training in the police department, in which a major point in training is patience, where they teach people to sit in position for hours if necessary and will not move. That sounds a little bit like our guy. There's also that sensitivity to noise that the EAR had, where he would turn off air conditioning He also had the planning for multiple escape routes where he would move furniture out on a back deck. He would leave multiple doors open so that way he could make a quick escape. He always would come in one way and leave another. Also with knives and knots and tying people up, those were things that were taught in the military and law enforcement. And also making use of any point of concealment, like looking where a human being wouldn't be, the bottom of an outhouse, middle of blackberry bushes. He also thinks that he has more stamina than anyone else. Hence, again, the sitting and the waiting and the watching. We need to remember the patience because that's going to keep coming up more often than not. At one point, he shouted freeze to a woman who was scrambling away. Who usually shouts freeze? We might have heard the police say that on every cop show we've ever watched on television. So there's definitely more of an awareness of police procedure than the average citizen. And then also there was a report that a woman, she reported a prowler, Shelby went to see her, and she said that she heard a police radio outside her home. Somebody finally called the police for a prowler. Somebody did. I I stood up and clapped
0: when I got to that part (laughs) in the book.
1: (laughs) So that begs to uh, ask the question, was he one of them? Was he a police officer? We will go into a lot more
0: detail on that during second cast to answer that question. We don't know if he's one of them or not, but we do know that the victim count keeps going up. By May 77, we have 17 victims. Quickly, by the end of May, move up to 20 victims. And what we have at this point in the public is a full-blown panic. This is a state living in a state of fear. There are some changes that are made, though, that might have crimped his style a little bit. The DMV stops allowing the private purchase of information.
1: Why they even allow it in the first place is mind-boggling. It
0: left me speechless, but I guess back then we were far more trusting that if you were looking for this information, you probably had good reason for it, versus I'm going to go rape my neighbors.
1: Probably, ra- That's logic. Yeah.
0: I, again, it must be a simpler time. People cut and prune their trees and bushes so there is nothing blocking their windows. They reinforce their sliding glass doors and windows. They put tambourines hanging from doorknobs. Three- 1000 guns are sold in just sacramento county and that was only over a six-month period yes but remember this is a guy who breaks in and takes the bullets out of the guns floodlights people put in floodlights couples are starting to sleep in shifts one stays up sitting on the couch one sleeps sacramento sheriff department they are now getting their full-blown panic 6169 calls mostly about ear, which is actually too much to make any sense of that much information coming in. So first you have no calls coming, and now you're being a flood of calls. going to rain it worse.
1: What this reminds me of is actually another book that we read called The Midnight Assassin, which I'm sure we'll probably do another episode on. Oh, right. a fantastic book. But this took place back in the late 1800s, where you had this full-blown panic when this unknown murderer was going around killing servant girls. And you had everyone out in the street at one point doing these searches and putting out all these lights just so that way everyone was in the light. So you really had a similar panic mode back then compared to now. Yes, exactly. So now we're also getting to an interesting part of the story where over a three-day period, he does something a little bit weird. He threatens to kill two people. Remember when we talked about how there was a crime intervention discussion at that high school? The man had criticized the investigation. The EAR might have actually been at this discussion because the woman who was raped was the guy who spoke out and criticized the investigation. His wife,
0: yeah, he basically said that as long as he was in the house, his wife was safe and she wouldn't be raped. Now, a few months later,
1: here we are. are. During the attack. In his jittery, stuttered, jilted whisper, he said, Those fuckers, those pigs, do you hear me? I've never killed before, but I'm going to kill now. I want you to tell those fuckers, those pigs, I'm going home to my apartment. I have bunches of televisions. I'm going to listen to the radio and watch television. And if I hear about this, I'm going to go out tomorrow night and kill two people. People are going to die. But then he went back and told the husband, You tell those fucking pigs that I could have killed two people tonight. If I don't see that all over the papers and TV, I'll kill two people tomorrow night. So we have an instance where he's saying, tell the police and I'll kill people, or don't tell the police and I'll still kill people. So it begs to differ. Is he just going to kill somebody at this point? I think these are the more
0: mind games. This is what he wants to do. Am I going to? Or am I not going to? He knows
1: people are terrified. He knows people are panicked. And he's enjoying it. Yeah, and then he just went and ate some cheese, crackers, crackers, half a cantaloupe, and he left. Well, there you go. Yep, yep, there you go. <laughs> yep.
0: Well, guess what? This goes into the Sacramento B. Ear attacks number 23. Next victims die tonight with a question mark. That's the headline. Was he pleased at the headline? Who knows, but the victims talked to the police and told them the conflicting messages he had left with them. The sheriff's department consults psychiatrists and says, "What is up with this guy?" They basically decided that he is probably a paranoid schizophrenic, probably a homosexual, and he's in a panic due to his inadequate physical endowment. Yikes. Ouch. So here you have an egotistical narcissist who's running around raping all of these women, and he's reading in the newspaper about his inadequate physical endowment. And so is everybody else. That is not going to go over with him
1: well. Not well at all. No. Then there's more changes due to the death threats that we kind of add on to what Jill was talking about earlier. More security in place. Rod iron bars go up. There's all-night vigils. 300 neighborhood men go on patrol in East Sac County in pickup trucks with CB radios. More bolts behind windows. More deadbolts. Deadbolts go on back backorder. And backorder. Deadbolts. Backorder. Deadbolts. <laughs> I didn't put get about deadbolts. Five on each door. I don't care what people say. And then the poor meter readers who are coming to read the electric. <laughs> oh, my God. They're, they're throwing out their hands up with their badges out saying, don't shoot me. I'm not EAR. I'm just trying to read the meter. What worst job to have ever
0: at this point? I can't even imagine being a pizza delivery guy. It might
1: be a good ruse, though. BTK was a ADT security professional. When you're into true crime, we're suspicious of everybody. We don't trust you. So now we come to Memorial Day weekend in 1977, and Fiona Williams, who's aware of EAR but lives in southern Sacramento, believes that they might just be safe because he's never hit here. Well, she's about to be wrong, unfortunately. What happens is they're relaxing, they're having a beer, they doze off, they wake up to fool around a little bit in the middle of the night, and then all of a sudden the sliding glass door opens and a man in a red ski mask comes in carrying a 45 pistol. Something out of your nightmare. So once he separates the couple, as, as he is prone to do, he comes in and he wants to make a clarifying point. He tells Fiona, I have something to tell you to tell the fucking pigs. They got it mixed up last time. I said I would kill two people. I'm not going to kill you. If this is on the TV or on the papers tomorrow, I will kill two people. Are you listening? Do you hear me? And then again, he kind of goes on to say he has TVs in his apartment. At this time, Fiona picks up on the fact that he's stuttering on L words. And then he says, it scares my mommy when it's on the news. And these gulping breaths, we start getting reports of this kind of manic, hysteric, kind of behavior strange here. And he starts talking about his mommy a lot after this, which is very, very strange. And then after they they finally get free, he leaves. They call the police. 4 a.m., the police arrive. And then this is where they bring bloodhounds into the case. The dog starts sniffing around, smells some things, runs across the highway, and comes to a small foreign car. Maybe a VW had been parked. And there was a strange thing that night, too. Fiona had been going back and forth from the house to the garage doing laundry. When she came back in, she noticed that a door that had once been closed was opened. She just thought the wind. Again, people, trust your gut, please. She closed and locked it. At that point, they had only been living there for three weeks, so they are still adjusting. Oh, It's mortifying, and it's so sad. And
0: that he had to go back and correct his message. He's raped these women. And he's clarifying the message that he's giving them. I'm going to be able to memorize what he's saying. I've just been raped. I'm not terrified out of my
1: mind. What is wrong with... But so then after uh, Fiona's rape, Carol Daly organizes a meeting among some of the female victims as a support group. Fiona developed a stutter like the EAR, or like EAR, the poor thing. She said she didn't leave her home for five days. And then Fiona's husband and another victim's husband, again, these attacks were so close. They started ending up going on patrol together and searching. Honestly, no one thought of the males as victims either, which I know Man in the Window highlights in one of the episodes where they talked to some of the husbands. A direct quote from the book is, Few men would experience what they had, would understand the shattering rage of lying face down on a bed, bound and gagged as your wife whimpers from another room.
0: They're just as much victims. It is shattering. It's gotta be absolutely horrifying feeling that helpless. They're supposed to be the protectors. And these are men from the seventies. Gender roles were very, very different. And they were the protectors and the breadwinners and and they couldn't protect. And there's one guy who stood up at that meeting and said I'll protect my wife. They become a victim. He, did he make her a target? Especially if fear was there. Oh, yeah. oh,
1: of course he did. It's as just horrifying weird. as it is, as bad as it is. But that's what he feeds on. Creating
0: this horror in his victims. That is the joy. That's the uh, allure to him. Please understand, I'm not blaming the husband. The only one responsible for these crimes is the criminal. And now a word about the Thread Network that is changing true crime. Tara and I are happy to promote the Thread Network. Which is the first true crime dashboard that lets followers search, save, share, and submit information on unsolved cold cases in all one place. Adding new cases each day, users can view materials on Susan Cox Powell, Amy Mahalovic, John Bennett Ramsey, and Alyssa Attorney. Follow them on Instagram at the Network. Or register today at www.thethreadnetwork.com to join in the discussion. Let's shed some light in the dark on these cold cases. The Thread Network, where true crime content and community come together. In I'll Be Gone in the Dark, real estate was one of the avenues Michelle McNamara wound up investigating. Going back to victim number five, Jane Carson, she had a Century 21 sign in front of
1: her home. They literally just had hours left in the house, which was really horrible. And that one
0: couple, Fiona and her husband, who had been in their home for just three weeks, another couple in on October uh, 1978, Dave and Kathy, guess what? In the process of moving out, barely had any furniture in their house, and they were victimized by the East Area Rapist. This real estate connection was something that they had to note. Was he going into
1: homes that were for sale, getting the layout that way? He could have been. I know that there was reports. I mean, he probably might not have been recognizable, but I know there was a couple of instances where realtors had noted people who really weren't asking questions, but just kind of walking around.
0: Michelle takes some time in comparing the East Area Rapist and the Visalia Ransacker. You find that they both were ransacking. They both stole trinkets, personalized jewelry he would take like one earring or one cufflink. I mean, what a jerk. He stole blue chip stamps. What the heck's a blue chip stamp? Blue chip stamps are like credit card reward points. Only back in the day, you would receive them and put them in a book, save them up, bring them and you know, get a blender. Okay. When you saved up so many. There was S&H green stamps too. This is all psyops that he's using. He would, again, steal things of less value. So it's not about stealing. It's never been about the stealing things. Both the ransacker and Ear used household items to make that alarm system. He would put cans on doorknobs as opposed to dishes on people. But still, it's a very unique way of alerting yourself. Hopping fences, they were both thought to be about 5'9". They took purses out of people's homes and dumped content outside just to be a jerk. Now, there are differences, though. Evidently, their shoe size was different. Now, you could be wearing a different pair of shoes, I guess, and Mm -hmm. sometimes sizes do change, but the big thing was the physical descriptions were different. The ransacker seemed to be less athletic, pudgier, thicker legs, whereas ear was athletic. How do you go from one to the other that quickly to have such differences in their descriptions? It wasn't clear that they were the same man. And today we know they are the same man. And more about that on Second Cast. (laughs) Yeah. Now we're going to get to
1: Sacramento, 1978. And this is significant because this is possibly the first murder that's going to be attributed to the East Area Rapist. And so these were the murders of the Maggiores, Brian and Katie, who were out walking their dog when they were shot. Doing the most natural thing in the world, just taking the dog out. Yeah, it makes me afraid when I go take my dog out sometimes. The dog survived, but unfortunately, Brian Katie did not. And this is where many believe that the EAR might have been spooked because there was actually a composite sketch that was released around this time frame. Then we come to another interesting aspect of the EAR. On June 7, 1978, there was an attack in Davis, California. And this was attack number 34. It happened at 3.50 in the morning. And it was a 21-year-old UC Davis student. And the reason why this is significant is because it was actually a structural anomaly. And this is a term that Larry Poole used. And this was the only time he ever attacks in a multi-story building. I can only imagine that this girl must have pissed him off to make him go out of his comfort zone. And this is not going to be a different person. Because a lot of what he does is the same that we see our ER do. For him to leave the security of residences
0: that are one-floored to go into a multi-story building, something about her attracts. And for her, knowing that all these residents have been single-story, one-family homes, she must have been shocked. Completely shocked. She thought she was safe. Yeah, she must have thought
1: that. But this was a particularly violent attack. He punched her several times in the face after she tried to resist. He shoved her face into the floor and broke her nose. She even had a concussion. And not a lot of the victims up until this point had been that severely beaten. So it kind of makes you think, like, was this an impulsive attack? Or if she did something, he might have known her from some way or another. But he was wearing nylon stocking. It wasn't a ski mask. And he used a screwdriver to pry open her door. One of the most significant points from the rape victim was that he had her hands bound and he forced her to masturbate him with her bound hands, which we know is significant. And that's
0: his MO, part of how he conducts his rapes. That brings us to the attacks taking place in June in Davis, Modesto. These attacks are going to occur in less than a 24-hour period. First attack on June 23rd. There's a a housewife, her 10-year-old son locks him in the bathroom, rapes his mother, rummages through the house, and steals 17 rolls of
1: pennies. How
0: petty. How petty can you be to steal 17 rolls of pennies? That petty. Because that's what he did.
1: Unbelievable. And my recollection is a roll of pennies is
0: only 50 cents. You got it. Okay. Yep. The next day, attack 36 takes place. And this is the second of three Davis attacks. Uh, quirky fun fact. All of the streets in this area are named after Lord of the Rings. I like that. I do too. That was really cool. There's a pedestrian bridge that is over a drainage area. And in this area, the ground is rather soft. So you could find shoe prints. So you could tell where he had tracked and stalked around. He loops back into the victim's backyard, casing as he does. Realizes he can't get through this area and has to veer back and attacks and rapes this woman. The third attack is on July 6th. 33-year-old woman is recently separated, is sleeping. Her son's are in another room, comes in, attacks her, ties her up. This time, he sodomizes the victim. So something is really off here. Because he's never done that before. No, no. They've all been vaginal rapes. And in this rape, he is sobbing. He is sobbing his eyes out. There will also be a three-month hiatus on rapes. Two in a row in a 24-hour period, sobs, sodomizes, nothing. In this particular Davis area, there is a connection between the first Davis and the third Davis victims. They carpooled together because their kids went to the same nursery school. And that was the
1: only connection
0: between all of these victims that they could find.
1: We're moving to Goleta now, and we're still in 1979. And this is where things really change, and we're going to start talking about the murders. October 1st, 1979, on Queen Anne Lane, we get a blinding flashlight in the eyes, clenched teeth, whisper. Female ties up the male, and he brings her to the living room and throws tennis shorts over her head. He's whispering, I'll kill him, I'll kill him, I'll kill him. And it sounds like, with some of the reports, that he might be losing a sense of control. And so then something happens. The woman managed to escape her bindings and she runs out of the door screaming. And I can only imagine what people might be thinking, but they're probably asleep and since they don't call the police, who knows what's going on. But she runs out of the door screaming and her boyfriend hops out into the backyard. He's still tied up and he rolls under a bush to hide. Ironically, their next door neighbor is an FBI agent. His name is Stan Loss. And he comes outside just in time to see a man speed off on a silver bicycle. He gives chase. The EAR, he drops the bike and he runs. From the description that we get is tennis shoes, brown hair, about 5'10", 5, 5'11". 5, and after this night, when he's chased and lets victims escape, no victims would ever live to describe him again. So Galita's bad for him. He just loses control in all three of the cases. And what happens is the male just resists, tries to fight back, and he ends up just shooting and killing them. He's also concerned that the shots would attract police. So instead of being able to rape the women like he wants, he shoots them and flees again. David Cantor who's a criminal psychologist. He says, a criminal is more vulnerable in his history than in his future. And what we kind of get from that, Jill can kind of relate to. That would make sense. I mean, the best predictor
0: of future behavior is your past behavior. But if you haven't done the behavior as yet, you have to look at your past behavior. And it's in the evidence he leaves. Where is going to be his downfall. Sheriff Detective Thomas was, again, looking for evidence, canvassing a neighborhood, seeing if anyone had noticed anything. He finds his way over to Linda. Linda, fortunately, kept a diary, so she was able to keep track of dates when things occurred and didn't occur. So she is outside, and a man approaches her and says, Hey, my dog Kima was stabbed in your backyard last night, and the hose was turned on and left running, which was strange to both of them. They didn't understand what was going on with that. Because Sheriff Thomas happened to be on the scene canvassing and talking to the neighbors, what they realized and put together is that there was a white adult male carrying a knife who was moving from one scene to another, prowling around, dropped his pre-cut ligatures that the dog had nosed around him, so the man cut him, injuring the dog, and turned on the hose to wash the blood away. This is the individual we're talking about. He'd lost control. He's trying to regain control.
1: And unfortunately, this wasn't the first time, which we try not to get into too much. But the chemo story is important, especially since it shows covering up and escalation and just what some people might actually remember. So now we're moving to December 30th of 1979. And this is where Robert Offerman and his girlfriend, Deborah Manning, are found murdered. They're found by friends that they are supposed to play tennis with. Deborah was bound on the bed with white nylon twine, and Offerman was kneeling at the foot of the bed, clutching a piece of the same twine used to bind Deborah. There were pry marks on the window. A screwdriver had been used, so that's significant in what we know about the East Area rapist. Offerman fought back and he broke free. Neighbors heard gunshots at 3 a.m., but apparently no one called the police. <clears throat> I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I don't mean to laugh, but it's just, it's mind boggling. And what we know is Offerman was shot three times in the chest. So there was three separate gunshots that someone might have heard at one single point, And then a fourth in which Manning was shot in the back of the head. And then nonchalantly, he just goes down into the kitchen and starts eating their leftover turkey from Christmas. I'm sorry, it's just unbelievable. And what's interesting here is there might have also been um, evidence of squatting next door. The house next door was up for sale and empty. Another real estate ties connection. In, tie, I was gonna say ties into that real estate. And there's other strange events occurring around the neighborhood or on that same street. There's additional ransackings um, running through someone's living room and out the back door. A poodle got punched in the eye, and there's Who also a poodle. A little poodle. Oh, it's a po- had to quiet it. I know. His probably barking and nipping at his ankles, and he had to punch the poodle. And then there's also some pieces of nylon twine found in various locations around the area. Same M.O., same things that we're seeing from the Zalia Ransacker, from East Area Rapist, has to be the same guy. And people are still not calling the damn police.
0: <sighs> well, this brings us to Cockle Shelf Draught in the Guna Shores, the gated community with someone manning the gate, and of course, no one heard a thing. This is the home of Patty and Keith Harrington. They were newlyweds, and they had not been answering the phone. So Keith's father, Roger, comes over to see what's going on. And he notices a loaf of bread sitting out, and it looks stale. But that loaf of bread was not going to prepare him for what he was going to find. And when he went down the hallway, he found Patty and Keith lying on their stomachs on the bed, arms bent at strange angles, and it is a a bloodbath. Michelle explains you might have thought that they had fallen from some kind of great height because there was so much blood. Keith had been killed first, bludgeoned to death. Patty was sexually assaulted, and of course, the timing of these events were to make sure she suffered as much as possible. He's playing head games. I hate this guy. Brass was found in Patty's head wound. Giving us a clue as to what the murder weapon might be. They found more evidence of um, wooden matches on the kitchen floor. They were non-smokers, so this had to have come from their killer. They found four more of these in the flower bed along the outside of the home.
1: But they didn't find cigarettes. I did not find cigarettes. Hmm. You must know police procedure. Everyone says that they were just lovely, lovely people. And this was such a terrible loss. And moving over to um, the next series of murders in Ventura, 1980, we have Lyman and Charlene Smith, who were found by their son from Lyman's first marriage on March 16th, 1980. There was a 21-inch log that was found to have bludgeoned them to death, and these were just devastating blows to the head. They were bound with drapery cord, so not the vinyl cord that he normally used, but again, using materials that he found in the house. Must not have had a hit kit, per Mm -hmm. se. There was a view from the bathroom window into the bedroom. It was thought that at some point there might have been a familiarity about this particular crime. I think it was just flat-out rage. There was a suspect named Joe Alsip. Um, We won't get too much into detail about him. Even Michelle references that you can read the trial manuscript, but it was just a case of false confession. He was actually released for lack of evidence this file, like any of the other crimes that we just discussed, the Harringtons, and and offering and manning these cases would just go cold and sit on a shelf for years.
0: So now we're moving ahead in time to 1981. In February, the murder of Manuela Witham. We mentioned her discovery of her body at the top of the episode. David, her husband, was actually suspected at one point. What was really significant about Manuela's case is that the tape, from the phone answering machine was missing. That indicated that her killer's voice must have been on that tape. Had he made phone calls to Manuela? We don't know. Evidence of pre-prowling, the break-in, ligatures were removed. He's learned something and he's taking them with him. They come in and there is massive overkill. She has been bludgeoned to death. Evidently, he spent enough time with her to stress her out to the point she vomited. Again, the psychological games that he's playing with his victims are just horrific. Manuel's mother found the body, and it was really a horrifying scene for her. Jim White was the investigator. He thought at first that this murder was connected to the Harringtons, and guess what? He was right. There was some concern because of the overkill. Often, when there is overkill, when it's just massive, massive blood loss and bludgeoning, that the killer has some kind of emotional stake, knows the victim personally. But I've also known cases where there is no connection between the victim and the killer. It is the killer's emotional state that causes the overkill. And this is one of those cases. Manuela had been tied up. She couldn't resist.
1: And a force that is inflicted on this poor woman is tremendous. So now we're coming to Galita in 1981 with the murders of Sherry Domingo and Greg Sanchez. They're found murdered at 449 Toltec Way. This is actually at Sherry's Aunt Barbara's house. And this house is actually up for sale, so we also have another real estate connection. A realtor who was showing the house actually remembers a white male coming in and out of the open house without saying a word. When the viewing was over, she noticed that some metal fragments uh, were in the kitchen on the floor. And in hindsight, she thought maybe it looked like the locking device from the rear door of the house had been broken. So she thinks that um, somebody may have broken that and actually stolen the keys or tried to figure it out so that way they could kind of get back in when they came back. So what happened that night? So just like all of the other murders, Greg and Sherry were sleeping. There was a conspicuous sound of door on shag carpet that alerted Greg to an intruder. He actually fought with the intruder. He gets shot in the cheek, spins around, he's on the ground, and then he takes uh, some time with Sherry, but he ends up killing her too. Neighbors actually hear the gunshot, and they also hear a woman say, in an unemotional way, take it easy. What's really unfortunate about this case too is we have a another victim, not a murder victim, but someone where just the ripples of a crime just kind of takes hold of somebody's life. And that victim is Sherry Domingo's daughter, Debbie. Debbie was a teenager at the time. Her and her mom didn't really get along so well. They actually had a fight the day of Sherry's death. And the last thing that Debbie ever said to her was, just, why don't you just get the hell out of my life? And for Debbie, this stays with her for some time. And I I know Jill has actually met Debbie at CrimeCon. And I know that she struggled with addiction and other things throughout her life.
0: I was fortunate enough to meet and speak with Debbie, and she did struggle with that. that be the last conversation she had with her mom. What she's come to realize over the years is that that argument and not being at home saved her life. And that is exactly what her mom would have wanted. So I think that's pretty profound. We need to keep in mind a lot of time has lapsed. All of these family members are victimized. So it's not just people who are in the house with this guy. It ripples out like that Mm -hmm. pebble in the pond. Yep. It really does. Now, we have a five-year hiatus go on until 1986. And our next and final victim associated with this guy is Janelle Cruz. Now, Janelle, like an endless number of young women, moved around a lot. She had been a victim of abuse. She's somewhat of a rebel, uses drugs a little bit. Goes to YMCA camp, job corps in Utah, earns her high school degree. She starts taking classes at the local college. She's hostessing at a restaurant. So she's getting on with her life. She's growing up. Her mom and her stepdad are on vacation in Cancun. So Janelle's at the house by herself. And she has a friend over and they're watching TV. And, you know, they hear this noise outside. And they're like, what's that? And they think it's cats or whatever playing. And then they hear a noise in the garage, but she's got the washing machine going. I'm telling you, trust your gut. And her friend goes home. Janelle goes to bed. Now, ironically, this real estate connection comes up again because the house is for sale. Two days later, on May 5th, the real estate agent comes in to show the house. And she walks in and she finds Janelle murdered. Well, the real estate agent bolts. She goes back to her office, calls her boss. Can't reach him. Turns around to her colleague and says, I I found a dead body. And they're like, what? What do you mean found a dead body? I found a dead body. They get in the car. They go back to the house. And yes, they really did find a dead body. It wasn't a mannequin. Not a mannequin. It's not a mannequin. And they finally call the Irvine police. And the Irvine police come. There's Janelle. And this is just a horror massive head wound her teeth are knocked out they're found in her hair semen between her legs when they find tennis shoe prints on the outside of her house near the garage there are no ligatures he has taken them with him this is his new mo he has evolved there's no weapons found at the scene a pipe wrench is missing When police canvass the neighbors, they find some of them heard a loud muffler around 11.15. Neighbors also reported seeing an inordinate amount of light coming from the house. Which is weird. Right? Because he usually covers the lamps with a blanket or a scarf. Do you think this is because there's been a five-year hiatus and maybe he's forgotten his own methods? I have to wonder. Now, they do investigate young men that Janelle might have been seeing or involved with. They do collect DNA samples. But this is 1986. This is very, very, very early.
1: And they do find that he is a non-secreter, which we know, part of the profile, what we know about the uh, East Area Rapist. And with the death of Janelle Cruz, this marks the end of roughly over a decade of rapes and murders that we can attribute back to Ear, ONS and s original Night Stalker, the Sally Ransacker.
0: Yeah. Man of many names, but the one that stuck? Golden State Killer.
1: Thank you, Michelle McNamara. So we're going to switch gears here now. We're going to talk a little bit more about Michelle. For anyone who might not have followed along with us or not really know the story, Michelle did pass away. Uh, She passed away in her sleep on April 21st of 2016, and this was before the book was even completed. So not only do we have all of this investigative material, all this research that she's compiled, all these things that she wanted to do, but we only have half a book. From the autopsy, we do know that she had an undiagnosed heart condition. And along with the medication she had been prescribed, this unfortunately attributed to her untimely death. Michelle is survived by her daughter, Alice, who she does speak a lot about in the book, especially when she talks about kind of overtaking her playroom to house evidence and all of her notebooks and files and... uh, File boxes. File boxes. The mother load, as she termed it. Mm -hmm. And also by her husband, Patton Oswald. But a lot of what Michelle does describe, especially writing about this guy, this horrible man who committed all of these crimes, she also talks a lot about herself. And we get an idea of who Michelle actually was. For someone who hunts monsters, especially from the perspective that she does as a journalist, she kind of has some similarities in terms of the same type of personality that kind of drives this particular thing. That that obsessive personality. Yeah. And I think that's part of the reason why she was on some of the medications that she was prescribed. It was because she was consumed and obsessed by this particular case that it just haunted her and took over her life and made her even suffer health-wise. Anxiety, insomnia, And it even affected her marriage with Patton. She would forget their anniversary, unfortunately. I know she spoke about how for their 10th anniversary, he had one of her articles bound into this professional binder. And then she was like, and I didn't even get him a card. It just kind of took over everything to the point where it was just all consuming. Michelle also talks about what really got her started down the true crime path. I think that's one of the questions that we kind of always ask ourselves about what really got us into into true crime. Jill, do you remember what got you into true crime? Uh, I do. I grew up hearing about Ted Bundy,
0: Son of Sam, reading the news accounts, watching it on the TV. And I think I just developed a fascination for death. And I wanted to know what drove these guys. Why did they do what they do? And it's really been my lifelong obsession.
1: I want the answer to that question. Kind of the same thing. I don't really remember anything particular, but I just remember looking up, like, an encyclopedia of serial killers on the I computer. I have on, my, on my murder shelf. Perfect. We'll take it off the murder <laughs> shelf one day. Uh, for Michelle, it was uh, the case of Kathleen Lombardo. Kathleen was from the same neighborhood that Michelle was, and Kathleen was 24. She was out jogging with her Walkman. Remember Walkman? Yeah. <laughs> And unfortunately, while she was jogging, someone came out from an alleyway. He grabbed her from behind, dragged her into the alleyway, and slit her throat. And this was a big thing happening in the neighborhood. This was literally maybe two streets down from Michelle. Mm -hmm. Um, The whole neighborhood was very shocked and appalled by what had happened, and this was a case that would go unsolved. And Michelle would walk out to the crime scene two days later, and she even picked up pieces of the broken Walkman. And she notes, and this is a quote, the hollow gap of his identity seemed violently powerful to me. And in those moments when she's holding the pieces of the Walkman, that's what she's thinking. And she thinks, I need to see his face. He loses his power when we know his face. And I think that is what she very much strived for, in hunting the East Area Rapist and trying to figure out who he was. And now years later, when she goes home, she's speaking to some of the old friends from the neighborhood, even someone that she had a crush on. These two guys are Terry and Dan, and they meet up, and they have this stark revelation about the fact that they believe they might even have encountered the killer that night. And now Terry and Dan were actually part of the group of kids who actually discovered Kathleen's body. I'm assuming, A, this is terrifying and for them to remember this detail even years later is probably pretty astonishing as well. But they remember that a man emerged from the alleyway at almost the same time. And he was a man of Indian descent. He had his linen shirt open to his navel shorts and sandals. So pretty descriptive for someone, especially finding a dead body. He said, what's going on here? And at some point, someone actually recalls the same man coming out onto his patio after just having taken a shower and literally saying the exact same thing. What's going on here? Oh, my God. That's so creepy. Did they run into the murderer that night? Had he just
0: washed Kathleen's blood off himself? From that point, Michelle takes the attic bedroom, gets her typewriter out, and refers to herself as Michelle the writer. And that's exactly what she did. So one of the most challenging aspects of writing this book was coming up with an ending. How does the book end when the crime remains unsolved? What became a greater problem is, how does the book end when the author has died? What Pat Oswald did is he turned to Billy Jensen, who is a true crime journalist and podcaster himself now, and Paul Haynes. In the book, he's referred to by Michelle as the kid. And Michelle met with Paul Haynes. And I hate to call him an amateur because he is a researcher who devoted enormous amounts of time and energy into finding out the Golden State Killer's identity. This man had every phone book from that entire era, and they were working on developing a list of names so they could categorically go through the names of everybody living in the area that they could eliminate one at a time. They were gonna track this
1: guy down. I think Michelle found a kindred spirit in the kid, Paul Haynes. I think she kind of saw a little bit of herself in him in the way that they are meticulous about what they are looking at and kind of had the same investigative techniques. And Michelle actually put him into contact with a software developer up in Canada. Based on the kid's specifications, they were working on this database. And they were basically going to pull in all of these people from the area and like Jill said go through meticulously. Just based on some of what they already knew, they figured that it's relatively clear that the Golden State Killer would have been living in Sacramento County in the mid to late 70s, and then in Southern California in the early 80s. So if they could find records, probably a lot of people, but if they could find records and funnel all of this into this database that they are working on, our Golden State Killer might have been on that list.
0: If half the population is female, they're eliminated. We know we're looking for a male. You know, you're looking for a white male. That eliminates another huge segment of the population. They were onto something. With Michelle's death, Patton Oswalt gets Billy Jensen and Paul Haynes to organize the materials Michelle had left into viable chapters. A lot of that material has to do with Paul Holes. Paul Holes is an investigator with uh, Contra Costa County. And he's going to be directly involved with analyzing DNA genealogy. That's going to be incredibly important. And we will talk a lot more about that when we get to second cast.
1: Because Paul is one of those people that we cannot leave out of this story. And I know we haven't really touched much on him, but we really wanted to take a deeper dive into the DNA, especially in how it contributed to catching the killer.
0: Yeah, that's a story unto itself, but it's going to have to wait for its own time.
1: There's so many more things that we could say about the case and so many more things that we could say about Michelle. But one of the things that I find to be most true for her is is what Paul Hole said about her. He considered Michelle his partner and he said, Michelle was able to accomplish gaining not only my trust, but the trust of the entire task force and proved herself as a natural investigator, adding value with her own insights and tenacity. The ability to learn this case, have insights that many do not have the aptitude for, the persistence, and the fun and engaging personality all wrapped up in one person was just amazing. I know she was the only person who could have accomplished what she did in this case, starting out as an outsider and becoming one of us over time. I think this private-public partnership was truly unique in a criminal investigation. Michelle was perfect for it. I think that sums up her investigative abilities and just the fact that she not only cared for everyone that she spoke to, had such utter respect for the victims and their families, And just kind of got everyone to talk to her That she really was the perfect person To write about this case As she states in the book He didn't have a name until I coined one The Golden State Killer One of our favorite quotes from the book Michelle said I need to see his face He loses his power when we know his face Well guess what Michelle We know his face now And he has no power anymore And that completes our first episode for Murder Shelf Book Club podcast. We hope that you enjoyed our discussion on Michelle McNamara's I'll Be Gone in the Dark. We're going to be dropping our next episode in a couple of weeks, usually around the fourth week of every month. And that will be what we term our second cast. And again, that's where we dive deep into... Some of the things that affected the case, we're going to be talking about the DNA. We're going to be talking about familial genealogy. There's so many. There's still so many things to cover. I feel like yes. And he's going to
0: be in court on January twentieth. Put it on your calendars. So this case is very much going to be in the news just about the time second cast drops.
1: So don't forget to subscribe. We don't want you to miss any information or episodes. And we just wanted to let you know our next book is The Trial of Lizzie Borden. We're taking it back. Yes. And uh, this book is by Kara Robertson. And she does an incredible job in diving deep into the trial and the times uh, around this particular case. Yeah, she looks into all this evidence. I've been a Lizzie Borden fan
0: for years and years. This fascinates me. I hope it's going to fascinate you,
1: too. And if you're lucky, Jill will share her PowerPoint that she has on the, <laughs> the map of the house. <laughs> she showed it to me once. There's a lot of information there. When I have people over, I make PowerPoints of murder sites. This is fun in my house. So don't forget The Trial of Lizzie Borden by Kara Robertson. Again, hit subscribe so that way you don't miss any episodes. And please leave us a review. Um, shoot us an email. Tell us what you think. If there's anything that we should touch on, any questions. We're happy to hear from you. And the recipe and wine, that's on our blog as well, MurderShelfBookClub.com. Until next read. All rights
0: reserved.